Do you like movies? Do you like TV? Do you like discussing the temporal effects of non-linear time travel and its implication on the plot of the movie Looper? Uh, okay. Do you enjoy the latest in pop culture news? Do you enjoy superheroes? Do you enjoy discussing the relative merits of superpowers and their effects on human physiology? Anyways, if you enjoy these things, even a small amount, you'll love the Rusted Robot Podcast. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube, and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. TheRustedRobot.Podbean.com Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the Mueller task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations and yes, that's all the Gaelic I feel comfortable trotting out. Um, my name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally Mueller <laughs> three-person discussion <laughs> panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979 and that would be me. There's also our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've read for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wonderful and glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Hello. Great. And finally, we have an extra special guest panelist, the host and producer of the podcast, Talking Who to You, the ever-excellent J.G. McQuarrie. Hello, J.G. Hey there. How are you doing? Woo. Did I get the name right? <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it first time out. So I, that gives me a lot of confidence for a, co- uh, a book which is based in my beloved home country. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, before we get started talking about the book, why don't you tell us uh, about your podcast, how often it airs, and where we can find you. Do tell. Sure. So the podcast, as you mentioned, is called Talking Who to You. And we are a podcast which is dedicated to discussing the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. We can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud and all the usual kind of podcasty places. And each week, myself and my co-host, Kevin Koser, will take an audio play from Big Finish, sometimes from the past, sometimes from the present. That's just how exciting it is. And we will talk <laughs> about it until we run out of things to say. Um, yeah, it's good fun. And I hope some of you will uh, have a download and have a listen sometime. Fantastic. And I'm going to be actually a guest on the next episode of JG's podcast. I believe this one is going to come out maybe just a few days before my guest appearance there. That's just the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey way these things work. But yeah, either way, we want you to listen to both of them because they're just great podcasts. So I even took the liberty of going over there, doing my research, giving it a listen. It's great. I'm really glad that you're bringing your interest and your talents to the, the, the web and the sphere of listening. That's very kind of you to say so. Thank you. And you've never listened to an audio, have you, Jenny? <laughs> never listened to an audio, you mean a podcast? No, no, no. Never listened to any of the Doctor Who audios from Big Finish. Oh, no. I was. It actually took me a second to figure out what it actually was that was being listened to consumed i was like wait what's what is this and then i was like oh okay got it that's okay Okay. we quite often have that experience as well (laughs) what are we doing yeah well exactly this is my life now yeah (laughs) 
this is my entire life now, it feels like. But, <laughs> but yes, um, before we get to talking about the book... Please remember our new Patreon page, which is available at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. We know you all have them. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. As always, and this time, we're discussing Jerry Davis's novelization of his own script for the Highlanders. And I, I swear to you, listeners, it's completely a coincidence that one of our panelists is more familiar with the setting of this book than we are. So without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, The Highlanders, adapted by Jerry Davis from the script that aired from 121766 to 1767, published by Target Books in August 1984. As of this recording in May of 2018, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 126 pages. Alright. And it's a delightful unabridged audiobook, by the way. That's how I got through this book. Had it not been for Annika Wills, I don't know what I would have done. But it's not that bad. Yeah, enough of, well, it's not, but it, it, you know what was happening this week. Um, let's read the blurb to get everyone caught up on this story, shall we? Um, JG, would you mind doing the honors? It would be my pleasure, certainly. Fantastic. History books don't always tell the whole story. Certainly, there is no record of an episode that has occurred when the Scots, led by Bonnie Prince Charlie, was defeated by the English at the Battle of Culloden in 1746. And the presence at the time of a blue police box in the Scottish moors seems to have escaped the notice of most eyewitnesses. The Highlanders sets the record straight. And while the incidents described may not be of the greatest interest to historians, for Jamie McCrimmon, they mark the beginning of a series of extraordinary adventures. Yes, they do. What a lovely reading. (laughs) Yes, that was fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) And of course, by the time... Gotta wait for the coppers to get past us. All right. (laughs) That was a lovely reading. And by the time the podcast uh, audience hears this, there will be that lovely uh, tune by Jamie in the background as well. So if if I can ever track it down. By the time they read this, you'll be dead as the ambulances are coming. (laughs) (laughs) It certainly feels that way. Well, as as we normally do, I'm going to give you some background on the uh, story. Such an odd story, this one. Uh, For one thing, the production team had for the longest time known that pure historical stories supposedly didn't go down well with the audience. And yet here we are with producer Inish Lloyd and uh, script editor Jerry Davis deciding that the best way to showcase their brand new doctor and to capture the attention of those swinging 60s kids (laughs) was to set a story in 18th century Scotland. Gripping stuff. (laughs) Oddly enough... Although the serial lost about a million viewers from the last episode of the Dalek episode that came before it, it went down from 7.8 to 6.7, it gained them back by episode 4, which had 7.3 million viewers. So, not bad for a historical. Mm. Nevertheless, this would be the last pure historical until 1982 and good riddance. Probably for the best. I think so. And yet it seems like I've read nothing but historicals. Maybe I read one yeah. science fiction, the, the Space Museum? This is true. Yeah, just bringing uh, JG up to date. Uh, Jenny, the last book that she read for us was Massacre. Quite the different story, I think it would be fair to say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very different story. 
both from its televised version and from this one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she's been doing a lot of historicals. Yeah, and before that you did, um, were you with us for the Crusaders? I was. Yes, I was. Yeah, so yeah, we need to get you on a sci-fi one, girl. <laughs> this is not doing well. Ugh, you've, been right. a, you've been a brave bonnie lassie. <laughs> <laughs> I... I'm going to proceed to say really inappropriate versions of a a Scottish accent. I'm so sorry ahead of time. Um, I just really want to say scone because I really like how that's pronounced. uh, Listen, your accent can't possibly be any more inappropriate than what we have, both on the printed page and from the original itself. So you go for it. (laughs) Don't don't give me permission. Don't don't really. (laughs) All right. So to talk about that. The televised story, a few points of interest here. Although Elwyn Jones was co-credited on screen for this story, he didn't actually get a chance to write a single line because he was busy with other projects. So this is all Jerry Davis then. And so we get a sense of what his writing is like when A, he allows himself to do comedy because this is essentially comedy. And B, he's not writing something with Cybermen in it. Another point of interest is that we get a new companion in the form of Jamie McCrimmon, who will not only outlast Ben and Polly, but will see two new companions join the show before he leaves at the same time as Patrick Troughton does two years down the line. In other words, the last story, Power of the Daleks, is the only Jamie-less story in the Troughton era ever. Hmm. Even if Jamie's a very different character here than the one he ends up becoming. And that leads me to ask you, just bear this in mind, be ticking over it in your thoughts, whether or not Kirsty seems like she was being set up as the uh, more appropriate companion, because she got a lot more time on the page. But anyway, this occurred because Fraser Hines, the actor who played Jamie, was given an option for further serials, depending on his performance here. And as little as we see of him in the book, his instant chemistry with Troughton was enough to ensure that he'd have a steady job for the next two years. As for the book, I hate to admit, I haven't found much info about its commission. Uh, Christine Doniger, the range editor up until 1984, was apparently the one who commissioned it, just before our good friend Nigel Robinson took over as editor of the range that same year. Apart from that, there's nothing in our Bible, the Target book by David J. Howell, about the commission or fan response to the book. It's really weird. We can't get any contemporary quotes about it. I do recall how incredibly disappointed the 14-year-old me was to get this book in the mail as part of my monthly subscription back then, since I'd been spoiled the month before by getting Inferno, but oh well, you can't have everything. (laughs) And one last thing. Apart from the mention of Bonnie Prince Charlie, the only true historical figure in the whole story is, drumroll, Solicitor Gray. Solicitor Gray was an actual person. Interesting. Yeah. So make of that what you will. He was actually one of my favorite characters, so that's kind of cool. Really? Yeah. Okay. Oh, fantastic. Well, you'll be pleased to know that he actually lived and he actually died, not just in uh, Jerry Davis's... uh, book so I'm, i think i'm pleased that he s- lived i don't know that i'm pleased he died i mean everyone has to die <laughs> well I'm no one's precisely pleased, pleased. Die, <laughs> well he's kind of a mean guy from all accounts but anyway so let's start with our first impressions what were your first impressions of this one uh jg we're going to start with you since you're our guest it's a really 
odd book to come across. I think it's interesting that you're saying you said that you can't find anything sort of contemporaneously about how this book was received. I think that's probably very sort of symptomatic of the Highlanders in general. I think it's a very forgotten series. In fact, I'm having a hard time thinking of a Doctor Who story that might be more forgotten, certainly in the in, in Troughton's era, because, I mean, okay, you have Power of the Daleks is his first one out, and, and that's the, the big splashy kind of sort of reinvention of the show. And then you mm-hmm. have like two or three stories which kind of gradually build up to the Troughton that we know. And right. the Highlanders feels like this really odd midpoint. I mean, as far as the book is concerned, at least, the Doctor is barely in it. It, there's, yeah. it, it, it is a lot about Polly a little bit less about Ben, some about Kirsty, and then like a, a few handful of other characters, one of whom happens to be this character called the Doctor, but there's not a great sense of him emerging as a character particularly. And I think, yeah, as far as the book's concerned, it's, it's really... You, you can tell it's, it's struggling to kind of land, I think, any kind of definition to the Doctor. And as a result, the other characters tend to get a bit more focus, and with that focus... Um, Something is something is gained, but something is also lost as well. It's a it's a really peculiar book, and because of course so much of season four is missing, um, I mean the Highlanders is just so forgotten, and and that does kind of come through a bit, I think. Yeah, I think so too, and I definitely know what you mean about <clears throat> his uh, character. I mean he's in the book, but it's not the Doctor; it's the Doctor as Doctor Von Veer, even though he's not called that in the um the book he's <laughs> the german that he gives on screen is actually literally doctor of who and when one of the other characters says doctor who he says that's what i said and it's a first indication of that joke which is lovely i think hartnell did it once before but it all comes down to the production team originally thinking that Troughton should adopt a different identity every story And here we've got two. We've got that German doctor and we have the old woman. And they're both delightful, but thank God the next story is the last story that that's going to happen because finally Troughton himself is going to emerge and he himself is far more delightful than any of these uh, made-up people. But yeah, it's, it's it's kind of on the same rung as the smugglers as far as stories that people just really don't remember anything about. Except that Jamie comes on board, and that's it. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to question something that you said earlier, if I may, yeah, because of one of one of the big fan kind of consensuses around this episode is that it's the episode where where Jamie debuts as a companion. But I don't think it is. I think the underwater menace is the story that he debuts as a companion. He's just, no, I agree. he's just in this one, and and not even a particular. Like he's not a major player in this, um, because one of, uh, definitely one of the things that I noticed is that um, Jerry Davis declines to give us a description of the Doctor, apart from the fact that he occasionally wears slightly crumpled clothes. Yes. So that's the only description we get of the Doctor. So if you pick this book up off the shelf, which a lot of kids did, I I did, um, and you might pick them up in a newsagent or a charity shop or something, but not necessarily in a library or or by subscription. And you didn't know who the Doctor was. You might assume that the slightly pretty boy on the cover was the Doctor. <laughs> because there's no yes. reason to assume otherwise. Jerry Davis doesn't bother to give us a description. And because Troughton doesn't... There's one scene where Troughton really comes through. I'll, I'll talk about that a bit later on. But because he doesn't really emerge 
that strongly as a character, it's, it's very easy to mistake sort of one for the other, just purely in terms of that 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 one piece of, sort of cover art. That's and true. It's, yeah, but it, it's it's a really odd thing that, that that Davis doesn't even give us a description of the Doctor. No, no, not at all. And this is only his second story. I'm assuming that um, JG, you've read many of these novelizations. Oh, you just don't even want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so many. The thing is, <laughs> the thing is, Tony introduced himself as being the long-term fan that started in 1979, and for me, that's a newcomer. I've been at this much. <laughs> I've been at this, lo- been at this longer than that. So, that you know, some, something of a dilettante by my standards, I'm afraid. Since you were a wee so, bairn, in other words. Since <laughs> I was a wee bonny lad. Then. So, uh, in, answer, in answer to your question, yes. Yeah, I'm. I'm not even a wink in your father's eye or whatever, because um, I've. No. This is maybe like the fifth one of these now that I've read, um, mm-hmm. and not knowing much about Doctor Who at all. I think I've seen one episode of some sort of like one of the newer versions with um, David Tennant as the Doctor, and having more of a just narrative. Um, and fiction background, I did a, a master's in it. You know, for, for take that for what it, for what it's worth. Uh, not not worth a whole lot to me. But um, every time I come into these stories, I think to myself, you know, it's true. If someone weren't already familiar with the larger narrative of the Doctor, they would have a really hard time figuring out who the hell these people were. Like, all of a sudden, we plunk into some place, and the action is going. And it's from when I was reading with um, the older doctor because I, I left for a while and then I came back and I was like who are Ben and Polly and Tony you were filling me in because <laughs> um, I was reading more of the Ian and Barbara era um, I could tell that this new doctor was different but not very much else about him at all I mean the fact that he seems nicer I guess the old doctor seemed fond of making sure everyone else knew how smart he was and how stupid they were which I never really cared for this doctor doesn't seem to do that as much um but yeah, aside from that, it's it's not a heavy it's seeming priority to characterize uh, the doctor constantly or, or not constantly consistently. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And I I think that's one of the things that's strangely impressive about the book that it leaves so little of an impression um, when you first look at it. Um, in fact, Jenny, you asked me who the pretty boy on the cover was, and I had to tell you it was Jamie. Except I had to be reminded, too, because that photo of Fraser Hines looks nothing like Fraser Hines. It is so strange that Jamie's not even himself. It's um, And I think, JJ, you're absolutely right that that version of Jamie that we pick up in this story is not the Jamie that we get even in the very next story. There's just not enough of him. I mean, maybe if we had some bagpipes. Oh, no, let's, no, no. Listen, I, lo- I love bagpipes as much as anybody, believe me. It's, that much, <laughs> huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that much. But uh, even, even I'm not calling for more bagpipes in this. I think we have the right yeah. level of bagpipes. The part where he was like, can you play us a rousing tune? He's like, oh, well, only if I had my pipes. I was like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I would exactly be comforted by a rousing um, bagpipe serenade. I was glad he only had the one pipe. Our, our, our official national, our, sorry, our unofficial national anthem in Scotland is a piece of music called uh, Flower of Scotland. And it's a lament. We're the one country in the world that has a lament. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, it sounds, sounds great in bagpipes wailing across uh, in a rugby oh. stadium, not so much. But it's you know, it's that kind of thing. So no, I'm I'm okay with the level of bagpipes here. I, I feel I feel they hit it in the head. Nice. I I do know that in the in the uh, audiobook, whatever tune they played at that point was really quite rousing because it's the uh, the uh, tune of the rebels, and I'm trying to remember the name of the damn thing. Uh, it's in my notes somewhere. Did they mention it in the story? Yeah. Yeah, they that did. That is chapter... Yeah. I also love how... Were we, JG, were you looking at the PDF of this thing as well? No, I physically own the book. Okay, see, the PDF I, that I have has no page numbers. That's so. how much of a veteran he is, Jenny. <laughs> he uh, actually owns I this. have I have like 60 of them. Good for you. Um, <laughs> have, 60 uh, copies of the Come on. <laughs> I, I have everything taking national pride a little far. I, I, I have everything from in an exciting adventure with the Daleks right up to um, the power of the Daleks. I even have the Pip and Jane Baker Doctor Who choose your own adventure. Yeah, uh, I mean, so a I. veteran doesn't even begin to describe it. I, I have no, post traumatic fl- stress. Yes, <laughs> I, I don't think I, I don't think I've even asked you this, JG. How old are you? I'm uh, nine hundred and forty-five. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> All right, I'm. I'm gonna find it because I, I know right where it's 49 of my PDF and wait, where am I? Yeah, it's chapter the water dungeon because they're down in this place, which I was also confused about. I'm like, wait, this is water? Are they near like the seashore? I had yeah, no idea how they. Lily Bolero. Yes. Oh yeah, that's there right, it is. Yeah. The jaunty tune, Lily Bolero. Yeah. Lily Bolero, that's probably either what I'm going to play over JG's narration of the blurb or at some point in here so our listeners can hear it. But um, yeah, it's it's pretty damn jaunty. <laughs> hmm. I like the line after that. Even Jamie was alarmed at this. E, he said. Wistia. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to get us all killed? It's like, well, that's kind of the point. <laughs> yeah. It, it's such a strange book. So let's, I guess we're jumping right into this and figuring out, well, <laughs> where we're do in we the water start? dungeon. We're here. You're in the water dungeon. Okay, so we might as well go there because this is a book where at least two of our main characters are tied up and captive for most of the book. It was pretty kinky. Just a bit, yeah. Um, the female companion is off on her own doing wild and wonderful things, and the doctor morphs into two other characters to do his own thing, and it's just like, yeah, it's like a field trip without a, um, a chaperone. And if there's any sort of feeling that anyone's gonna die, it, it doesn't really have that feeling of, um, it really doesn't have that feeling of danger, which is why I think of it more of a, as a comedy than anything else. It's funny that you should say that because I distinctly wrote by the end that I never was really all that worried about anybody. It really, there were other ones like, what's that one where Barbara is being like whipped on the stone tablet or whatever? That's the Um, Crusaders and it doesn't happen on screen. Um, Right. That, you know, in that book, I was like, oh, I'm I'm worried about some people here. (laughs) Like, what's going to happen? And I was distinctly uh, just you know, sanguine about everyone's situation <laughs> in this story. Okay. How do you feel about it, Gigi? Well, I mean, this is definitely a romp, 
There's no, there's no doubt about this, and it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a the, it's a romp, and there's no, <laughs> there is absolutely no sense of danger here at all. But then there's obviously not really meant to be. That's not what it's going for, and it's a weird historical. It's like um, I'm so sorry that you've had to suffer through a lot of historicals without having much in the way of um, science fiction. Um, but um, <laughs> you, you, you've I'll, done, somehow I'll get through. You've you've done well, lass. But uh, but one of the <laughs> one of the weird things about this as a historical is that it has um, it has an unusual perspective. It's set after the big event. So, yes. th- th- like, normally when you have a historical, if you take something like um, the massacre, it's all about the lead-up to, well, you know, the massacre or whatever. Or, or like the Crusades you mentioned, it's all about them getting caught up in, in, in that whole sort of environment. And they spend a bit of time exploring it or whatever, get into some scrapes and then leg it for the TARDIS. That's fine. That's the normal st- setup for almost all historicals. But this is different. It's, it's set after the big event. And so there's no real threat from the battle. There is a, a bit of, sort of suspense and tension, a little bit, from sort of roaming English patrols or, or whatever, or from, from um, sort of the machinations of uh, Solicitor Grey. But there's no real... It, the, 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 the sort of impact of the drama is gone because the battle has been... And normally when you have a big event like Culloden or some, you know, like even the fires of Pompeii, it's all about like the run-up to the volcano exploding. We don't have yeah. that here. And that gives this one space to do other things. And the other things it does... Is sort of light comedy and like maybe a bit of drag from Patrick Triton. <laughs> it's really, it's just <laughs> maybe. <laughs> okay, definitely. But what's odd about it is, is, is because it's different from all those other historicals. Um, it has that sense that it gives the impression that the, st- the historical still has somewhere to go. You, you pointed out quite rightly that this is sort of the last one until we get sort of the sort of footnote of Black Orchid and then, well, there's some in the novels and some in Big Finish and whatever. But it's the second last one as far as the TV show is concerned. Um, but it's kind of weird because this does suggest that there's another kind of way of doing historicals. And we've had comedy historicals before, like the Romans or whatever, and the Romans is brilliant. I love the Romans. Oh, but, yeah, we do too. But but both, I think, in the sort of televised version, and particularly in the novel here, there is a real sense of lightness about it. And it, it comes from having this space about from being set after the big event, I think. So it's nice. It's got a, it's got a nice kind of sense of sort of perspective. And, and like... How can I say this? Like, I feel a bit sorry for Ben and Polly because. Um, oh yeah, so <laughs> like um, you were saying earlier that um, you know you you came to this book and you um, you were asking who are Ben and Polly and those of us who have listened and watched every episode they've been in could ask the same question because they're not <laughs> like 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 he's the Cockney sailor and and she's a she's a toffee nosed sort of upper class bird and that's it is that's as far as their characterizations kind of go and a lot of that gap is filled in by Annika Wills and uh, Michael Craze but you know on the page that's obviously missing and so I think Polly comes off quite well here but I think Ben struggles a bit was that oh, your impressions yeah yeah absolutely Especially in the beginning when they come to clearly what is the sound of a battle, and he's like, oh, I think it's a soccer game. I'm like, what? This? <laughs> I don't know that I would ever mistake war for a soccer game. Um, You've obviously yeah. been going to the wrong soccer games. Appar- yeah, apparently so. Uh, yeah. Well, Ben tends not to be that thick. Yeah, that's just it. He's, he's thick in this and doesn't really have a lot to do except show off his amazing abilities at being able to get out of ropes on the <laughs> Which water. Polly and Kersey could give a shit less about. He's like, <laughs> I did this, and they're like, moving on. Yeah, exactly. 
I was, it was at that point I was waiting for Ben to turn around and go, look, I've got one fucking thing to do here. I've done it. Could you please try and look impressed? Exactly. And yet that's probably the last shot fired really for either of them because, well, I'm trying to think ahead a little bit. Uh, underwater menace, yeah, Polly gets menaced by something underwater. Um, <laughs> the Cybermen, all of them are menaced, and strangely enough, Jamie and spends most of it unconscious. And then you get Macro Terror, which is one of those stories that I'm not all that familiar with, so I'll have to remind myself when we get there. And then we've got their last story. So really, there's not a lot of development. I will say that there's more development given to than say to to Stephen Taylor or to you know Dodo Chaplet. But then yeah, all you have to. I miss Dodo. She was a trip. She was a trip, but she was a different trip every time. I mean, really, uh, basically, the idea of giving characterization to Dodo is like you know, frying an egg and putting a different sort of spice on it each time. It's just, it's still eggs. So, I don't know. Ben and Polly at least feel more more alive than most, but they're about to lose that because here comes Jamie and they've got another mouth to put lines into. At least it's a good mouth to put lines into, but still. Well, I can scarcely argue with that. I'm going to stick up for Dodo in one time because there's um, a Steve Lyons book called Salvation which is a a, a (laughs) past Dr. Venture and she's really well characterized in that one book and that's it that's that's the closest I can come I'm always inclined towards sort of redemptive readings and trying to see the best and stuff I Uh, will agree but Dodo makes it really difficult yeah she does she does she does well especially when the only other big characterization of her is the man in the velvet mask, and she ends up contracting an STD and <laughs> go off and die of it. It's like, oh, for Christ's sake, really? It's just a strange book. But yeah, I, I agree. Salvation is probably her finest moment. Unfortunately, it's her only fine moment. <sighs> and poor Ben and Polly. If anyone was going to contract an STD, it would be Polly, who strangely <laughs> falls in love with uh, Algernon by the end of this, and he has some sort of weird Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> I have no idea what was going on with that. Yeah, I could see that. In fact, I think I, that was one of the more charming bits of the book for me, the fact that Davis does a very good job of showing exactly how uh, Polly gets one over on him and then manages to kind of win his affections over the course of the book by not necessarily mistreating him, even as she's blackmailing him. It's it's quite <laughs> subtle and deft in its own way. <laughs> you can well, tell I, she was a, a secretary, can't you? <laughs> oh, I'm not responding to that one. Um, <laughs> but... I do think Polly comes across quite well in the page. She's, she is quite charming. She's got a little bit of pluck, and, and she can kind of get on with stuff. And like listening to the audio of this, which I, I did to do my due diligence before uh, we recorded, uh, Polly is kind of annoying dur- uh, in, in, in the broadcast version. Um, she actually comes across, I think, much more likably on the page. I'm not sure if that's because Jerry Davis sort of tried to tweak her characterization realizing that it didn't quite work or if it's just a consequence of the fact that he's writing long long after the event and he's just doing it in a slightly different way but she does come across quite well even like even when she deals with Kirsty and Kirsty is quite an annoying character I think it's fair to say um but you know she she kind of 
in the sort of broadcast version, I mean, Polly really does treat her with contempt. But here, it's, it is, she is dismissive of her a little bit, but she's also, it's slightly more rounded. She understands, it seems, that she is dealing with somebody who's a little bit, of, you know, comes from a different place, comes from a different culture, a different time. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit more of an allowance for that, I think, on the page. Whereas, yeah, in the broadcast version, she just treats her with yeah, absolute contempt and, and it doesn't do the character any favours at all. So um, that's definitely one thing that, that I think works better here. As for poor old Ben. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I really want to say something about his accent on the page, which doesn't, which doesn't involve the words oh. dick and van and dyke. <laughs> But I don't know what else to say because all I could hear was all I could hear was Dick Van Dyke, Cor Blimey Governor, oh and God. it was so. I mean, you know, I I can't mm. do a London accent. I can barely do a Scottish accent, but <laughs> it just doesn't come. It, it's so clunky on the page. It just oh. I don't know. I don't. I suppose they have to do something to indicate it. But all his cores and all this, oh. n- nah, not so much. Whereas maybe, maybe because Polly is just written in a much more sort of straightforward way, her character is able to emerge and not be sort of cluttered up by this kind of oh. stuff. Well, thank you, JG, because you realize what you've done now. I'm going to have to go and find a clip from Mary Poppins of Dick Van Dyke's ridiculously bad Cockney accent and play it during the podcast. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Jim Jiminy, Jim Jiminy, Jim Jim Chiru. Good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. Or blow me a kiss. And that's lucky too. I'm sorry. I'm That's so, fine. so sorry. I would have done that anyway, but... Yeah. I've gone all oh, argy-bargy now. Oh, God. Yeah. Argy-bargy? I don't... I, I just... I looked up Shufty, because I was like, that sounds interesting. But then, you know, after I saw it kept going for the entire point, I was like, I'm just going to leave it alone. <laughs> I, have to, I, I have to say, um, there's a lot of times in this book where the the attempt to render an accent in print doesn't work, and and some of it is just terrible. Some of yeah. it, it I, I mean, even as as a, a native of this this fair and body land, some of it I was struggling with. Going, what the hell are you trying to say? Like there's there's one there's a, a few times when um, Scottish characters get to say what what is on the page, whist. Yes. Which is is both a card game, which is mentioned in the book, which is quite right. confusing, and also this way of saying to be quiet. But in it's 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 pronounced whished, and it does indeed mean oh. be quiet. Oh, whished, whished there for God's sake, stop talking. That's how you say it. You, uh, but it and it took me a number of times to go. What is? Oh, that's what they mean. And oh. that's just really that's really clumsy. So if it was bad for me i can i dread to think what people who were from london actually thought of ben's accent or it, it was just all <laughs> over the place but all those attempts to render accents do not work well just just remember how we feel every single time that perpy gilliam brown opens her mouth <laughs> it's much you, the same you, you way. know you have my sympathies oh yeah except in the audio strangely enough i will give her that much that she has gotten that accent down finally over the years but when she was on television in the 80s good god but yeah i i wonder that too because one of my questions for you is going to be just how offensive is this type of rendering of the so-called scottish <laughs> accent and prose to modern lit readers if at all 
I mean, it's not racist. <laughs> That's not a high bar to clear. Um, uh, it's uh, the thing is, is that it isn't rendered particularly well on the page. It's not. It's not beyond awful. There's lots of ach this and och I and lassie and bairn and all that kind of stuff, which is it's okay. It's a shorthand and um, it doesn't come across that badly it's not brilliant but it's it's certainly no worse than the wandering accents and, and, and the broadcast version which are, no. are k- kind of worse um so it's it's okay yeah it's 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 not perfect but it's not it's not beyond abysmal and speaking of the broadcast version is it true that fraser hines really does have the closest accent to a you know actual one or is he just as far afloat as everybody else honestly he's pretty good I have to say, I, I, I mean, okay, at, at this point, he's been doing it for, what, 50 years, I guess? So, I mean, if he hasn't got it down by now, it's never going to happen. But it's it's pretty good, and it's because he does it very softly. Mostly, when people try and do a Scottish accent, they do go for the whole kind of over-the-top, Hootsman, where's my kilt? Um, <laughs> or Groundskeeper Willie. But there's not normally much in between, and he kind of gets it right by just doing something very sort of gentle and sort of soft with it. And that's exactly the right way to do it, because it, it just renders it. Apart from anything, you're not trying to, you're acting with an accent, not acting through an accent. And right. that makes a big difference. And that's, I think, also the problem with it, that Nicola Bryant often had. She's a good actor, but she had to act through this terrible American accent that was inflicted on her. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually she learned to do that, and that's fine when it gets to the audios, but it got in the way of her performance in the TV show. Um, Fraser Hines is very good at doing that just very gentle accent, which allows him to be able to concentrate on the performance rather than just delivering an accent. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But if, as you said on the page, yeah, <clears throat> it's Not just so much. a foreign language in so many ways. Uh, what else? What about this this business of the Highlanders being not sold off as slaves, but actually being sent away as indentured servants? It, let me just ask you, JJ, before we go on to the discussion of it, is, the, is this chapter in history something that's common knowledge among UK school children, or is this something that's, you know, not spoken of? It's not common knowledge. It's definitely something that happened. Um, it- Culloden is kind of a weird thing. It's not... I'm I'm extremely old, so maybe it's changed now. But certainly when I was at school, it wasn't really something which was taught. And it wasn't taught because it remained quite politically... um, Divisive isn't quite the right word, but it, it inspired politics let's say um, um apart uh, culloden uh, i'm sure most people know but just for the sake of a very quick history lesson it was the last land war that was fought on uk soil apart from a, a couple of skirmishes and it was hmm. the point where um scottish forces were finally defeated um by the english and scotland forever or at least until <laughs> present time accepted scotland forever became part of the united kingdom right. um so that's that's what culloden was it was the final defeat of the scots army at um the hands of uh, the english of uh, the duke of cumberland and the the fact is this did happen um not just from uh culloden but from uh, a lot of battles around sort of the this this period people were indentured and sent to the colonies to work in plantations. So it, it, it's definitely a thing, but I don't think it's a particularly well-known thing unless something has changed radically um, since since I was at school. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah, Culloden's a weird one. It, even now, it's not particularly something that gets taught. It's, it's a very 
touchy subject and it's 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 not like you guys talk i mean you guys talk about like um like the war of independence and and the american civil war is kind of that's that's kind of like a living part of the history that you you learn and that you get taught about at school that that's not really how culloden is treated and it's 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 very bound up in the, the the way that um politics works in the uk and without delivering a long lecture on that which trust me i'll spare you it's very hard to it's very hard to explain it but it's it's no it's not a particularly well-known thing maybe it's the way we approach the uh, um the history of the japanese internment camps during world war ii it's not something that's taught very often, but when it is, it's kind of like, um, yeah, this happened, and uh, there were reasons at the time, and uh, blah, blah, blah. and it gets very mushy very quickly, and you kind of avoid it because you realize, oh, the Germans had concentration camps, so did we. If you define concentration as in a concentration of people. But yeah, I, even looking on Wikipedia, I did find one paragraph about this, and it was about penal transportation to the British colonies for life via the Traders Transported Act of 1746. And apparently 936 men were transported, but then 905 prisoners were released in 1747. And I'm wondering how many people ended up left in the West Indies or wherever they ended up and how many actually came back because there's really no sense of how that happened but it was it's just an oddity the the book is you're right the book is not about the battle of culloden it's about this weird transporting of the highlanders to the colonies if anything it's a weird setting for a comedy right yeah extremely it's like <laughs> setting yeah it's like setting a comedy during you know World War Two or the Civil or the Civil War, um, well, yeah, and of course that's been done quite often, but it is odd for Doctor Who to do it. I think that earlier, JG, when you were saying, well, like this apparently is a comedy, I think that sort of just flew over my head because I was like, you know, people are on a slave ship, like they've been referencing. Um, like Africans are saying that the Highlanders are going to be like even stronger than African slaves. And I'm like, Oh, here, even black people are getting shit on as well. Um, it's kind of a serious <laughs> sort of situation. And yet there's all this, this kind of comedy. I think that is now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, it's true. It's a comedy narrative, um, uh, slapped on top of this very serious situation that I wasn't sure what to do with all the time. Yeah. And Jerry Davis only gives us those two eye-glazing-over paragraphs of history <laughs> in the first I, chapter. I marked that. I was like, oh, here's our exposition dump. Here we are. History. Yeah. And I, I can hear Tony snoring from here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Jenny, you're quite right. It, it's, it's just this weird dump of stuff. Like, here's, here's like close but no cigar version of the history of what happened at Culloden and and uh, or in the run up to it and it's just a huge info dump at the top of the at the top of the book with with no kind of context like what is the weird thing like the um the, the the back cover blurb that we talked about before is kind of interesting because it it sort of positions this book as if this book is kind of like a, a historical document or at least a document which exists in order to correct kind of uh, a misunderstanding about history it's got yeah. very speci- it's got a really specific kind of tone to it and i kind of wish the whole book had been like that because that's really 
That's a, instead of like this like two-page two info dump of like, well, and then we marched down to Derby, but something happened, and then we marched back up again. It's, you know, it's all a bit kind of, I don't know, clumsy at best. Yeah. Uh, but well, it would be it, really yeah, interesting if they stuck sense. to that. Because it's like, <laughs> history books don't tell the story, by the way, this one. And I just looked it up on Wikipedia, and I'm like, well... It seems to be in history books. Like I was, I didn't understand how they wanted me to understand this. Like, is this? I wondered if this was trying to position this as historical fiction. But then I was like, no, okay, Bonnie Prince is real. So yeah. The closest they got to that was the mention of Prince Charles somehow sneaking out of the um, Scottish Isles um, in the garb of a young woman. And that almost felt like Jerry Davis saying, well, you know, we've got a few women in this book, so it could be any number of them, or the whole thing of the Doctor trying to pass Jamie off as uh, Prince Charlie at one point. And that seems like he missed a trick there, because he really could have stretched that out. Yeah, that really annoyed me. It's, you can't put Chekhov's gun, you know, this little thing in there and have a bunch of characters dressing up as women and then not have it come off. I even at one point thought that Jamie was this prince or something Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because he was like, oh, he looked sneaky and then he, you know, tried to run away. And I was like, wait, was that some sort of prince? And it never came out. And I thought, well, that's unfortunate. That tension that had been set up was completely unfulfilled. Wouldn't that have been an odd twist to have to turn out that the, uh, the person who ended up going off to France and staying there was actually Jamie McCrimmon, a piper, whereas the person who posed as Jamie McCrimmon and traveled in the TARDIS was actually Prince Charles. Yeah. But it's not going to happen. Well, yeah. We should be be grateful because, to be honest, Doctor Who doesn't have a great reputation when it comes to having actual historical characters be companions. So we've been been let off the hook with that one. But it is true that um, uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie did try and escape dressed up as a woman. uh, At least over here, there's a very famous song called Sky Boat Song, which my mother used to sing to me when I was a wee boy to get me to go to sleep. Uh, (laughs) Sadly true. Um, But that song is about him sort of escaping. It's about the aftermath of Culloden and Bonnie Prince Charlie escaping to Sky and having a very narrow kind of uh, mess with with English soldiers. So, um, yeah, Mm. that, that, that is another part of history, which is true. Sing me a song of a last that is gone Say, could that last be I? Mary of soul, she sailed on a day Over the sea to sky Mole was a stand, rum on the port Echion the starboard bow Glory of youth glowed in his soul Where is that I'm, I'm kind of glad they didn't pull that trigger on... I, I wouldn't have minded a cameo from him, but I'm kind of glad they didn't pull the whole Chekhov's gun trigger on it. Yeah, they kept they kept teasing it, though. 
you kept thinking that, well, he's bound to show up at some point, right? Because this is right after that battle and something, something's got to happen. But They just touched on it so many times that if they'd only mentioned it once, it wouldn't have been a thing. But we had a mention of it um, by, I think, either the Sergeant um, Clegg was his name. And uh-huh. then um, Algernon was running after it, and then they mentioned it like a different time, and there was all the people dressing up as women that I was like, oh goodness. It seems like it needed to come out at some point, um, but it didn't. Yeah, exactly. JJ, you were about to say something too. Uh, yeah, I was, I was going to say, do you think that's because we've been conditioned, being sort of, well, especially as sort of long term Doctor Who fans, um, to think that. Uh, that you know, this is going to end up being a, what we call a, a celebrity historical, i.e., yeah. a story where where somebody from his and we've had them in the past. You know, Doctor Who yeah, the, the celebrity historical isn't just a modern thing, but uh, but actually, now that you've point, pointed that out, Jenny, uh, actually, I don't think it is. I think you're right. I think they do just bang on about it slightly more than <laughs> is maybe necessary for something that eventually never quite happens. Yeah. Yeah, and that seems to be a weakness in the plotting of the story because it it sounds like Jerry Davis had to come up with this script fairly quickly because he thought that Ellen Jones was going to be writing it and, oh, nope, (laughs) that's not the case. But um, I I don't know that it would have been all that different if they had, if he had done the script, to be honest, because the whole point of it is not necessarily to do, give us any sort of historical accuracy about uh, Scotland in 1746. It's instead to introduce Jamie. And for that matter, uh, Jenny, you told me something earlier when we were at work about um, broom closets. <laughs> well, there was just this. Oh, Yes. This This is fascinating. It was on my page 58, um, but it's when uh, Gray, Solicitor Gray, has been tied up and put into this closet, and the story specifically says it was a closet of cleaning supplies with mops and things. And I thought to myself, (laughs) this is the end of the 1700s. They don't have broom closets. Like, what? And I went on this fascinating Google journey to try and figure out if they would have had such a place to keep cleaning supplies. And while I could find many interesting things about how people bathed at that time or the way toilets were handled, there wasn't much of a record of mops. Probably brooms, but not mops. So I do not think that there were broom cupboards in the late 1700s. <laughs> and this is why, Jenny, you were a fan favorite. <laughs> it just catches can... me out. Like, things that they say or that the writing, when it does weird things, I'm like, wait, what's going on? Like, mm-hmm. the fact that after... Polly and Kirsty were sent off to get water. They disappeared for about 30 pages and nobody seemed to give a shit. <laughs> I was no. like, dang, that water is far away. Uh, Kirsty must have forgotten where she put the well. And <laughs> um, of course. it was, I think it was on 40, where was it? Yeah, 40, page 46. It was, I counted the first time in 30 pages that Ben or the doctor mentioned that they could be worried about Polly or, or Kirsty. Like, send the girls off for water. Um, those incompetent wenches. So yeah, anytime there's a, just a strangeness in the writing, I'll I'll note it down because I'll think it's interesting or just funny. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, it, I think it's very cool that you did research into mops. I think that is quite one of the most <laughs> awesome things I've ever heard in my life. But but in defense of Polly, she does pretend to be an orange seller, so you know she progress, does. right? <laughs> 
Yeah. And she mentions well, it too. <laughs> but, you, but you're about to tell us what that actually means, aren't you? Um, it does kind of sound like slang for prostitute. Yep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, you, you guys got that, right? That came through. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was yeah. one line in particular that it was like, I can't remember where it was, but it said, oh, like, these are the kind of women that hang around the soldiers. And it was like, oh. Yeah, exactly. Oh. At, the, at the docks, wink, wink. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With them Christy. oranges. How do yeah, you like Christy them oranges? has that reaction. I think Kirsty's like, what? You don't mean to sell them, do you? It's like, um, um, what's wrong with that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's that's a nice bit of getting it past the censors. I'm I, I didn't actually listen to the um, the broadcast version though before doing this like I normally do because I just I just couldn't stand the thought of it. Uh, JT was it actually <laughs> in the broadcast version as well. Or? Yeah, it's one of those really weird things that. Um, you just kind of... One of the things I like about The Highlanders is that it's four episodes long, and that sounds like a really obvious thing to say, but it means that um, when you get, uh, not just with the oranges scene, but with a lot of scenes, it means there's a certain clip to them. A lot of yeah. Trouton stories tend to kind of drag their heels a bit, um, <sighs> like the, like, especially like the faceless ones, which is maybe an unfair example because we know it was greatly expanded um, to sort of fill six episodes instead of four. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of early Trouton stories that really feel like, like even i love power of the daleks i think power of the daleks is a brilliant brilliant so it's one of my all-time favorite dalek stories not but it is long but it is long and you feel how quick and how fleet of foot the highlanders is when you listen to it. it's four episodes and okay it's a shame that we have to listen rather than watch it but it does kind of clip along and i think that pace is maintained by the book as well so when you get these little short scenes like okay okay they're not really going to go so far as to say come and suck in my oranges sailors but you know it's you know that's that's what it amounts to so, yeah. but but it but it clips along quite nicely so you get that and then you get them meeting the doctor and then they go down to the de- the docks and then they get in the boat and then they get the guns in and then they have the whole battle scene in the ship and all the rest of it. and it just it, it kind of clips along and it's jerry davis isn't he's not the the most exciting sort of prose writer in the world. Not I think that would be that would be fair to say. Yes. Um, and and he sometimes, I mean, he's never met a comma that he wouldn't overuse. <laughs> that, like, all every sentence has like seventeen different subclauses in it, and it just and that sometimes struggles to get the rhythm quite right but when yeah. he does get it and it, i think that starts to flow really much better towards the end of the book um like with these little sort of vignettes these little scenes he, he kind of gets a nice little sort of clip to it it's a shame again that he doesn't get that a little earlier in the book when it's it's slightly sort of slower going but say uh, mm-hmm. oh poor old polly and poor old christy <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they do their best well i notice that when annika wills reads those sections you can hear the wink in her voice, and it's like, you go, girl. This is Oh, that's the, great. Yeah. Anthony Newley's baby mama, she knows what she's talking about. She knows what <laughs> Jerry Davis is trying to say in there. Oh, God. Though I will say, there was a hilarious moment listening to this book on audio. Uh, in chapter 13, uh, hearing her read this slide was delightful. Um, because when Kirsty says, you must have robbed the Duke's arsenal, it comes out sounding like she said, you must have robbed the Duke's asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it's just brilliant. 
Yeah, I was, when they said that they were going to do that, they're like, well, what can we do? They're like, okay, we'll just go rob some guns and put them in a boat and sail out to the boat. I was like, I don't, there's never been a situation in this book that hasn't just been plotted out of in the most, like, sort of uncreative way. It's like, yeah, okay, it's um, I guess that is what you can do. Fine. Uh, yeah. Sort of hilarious. It's it's like a whole it's like a whole audience seeing off a boat full of hand waving. You're not expected to look at the plot that closely, which yeah. is just that seems to be a hallmark of comedy. Because if this were more you know seriously taken, then you'd probably have. And JJ, you were talking about this being four episodes. If they had made it a six parter, we would have gotten half an episode about them trying to figure out. Oh my God, how are we going to get into the arsenal? Yeah, that's true. I'm glad that we don't have them trying to get into either of those things. No, this is true. (laughs) Feel we 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 may have got away lightly there, but I think one of the one of the other things about this is that there's no sense that um, that this is this isn't a pastiche of a particular historical style. Like I know I listened to the episode that you guys did in the Smugglers, and the Smugglers is very definitely playing up to sort of a a genre pastiche, and whether you want to take it as sort of like like Moonfleet or or something sort of even sort of like Long John Silver or or whatever. But it's definitely it's within that sort of pirate genre, and it's very much uh, you know constructed from that. But there isn't a sense that this book is really drawing on that kind of literary tradition or any kind of literary tradition at all. It's not like, even mm. something like very contemporary, like, say, Outlander, is very definitely drawing on that kind of sort of romanticized historical fiction kind of thing, or Dark or any of those kind of shows. This is very conspicuously not doing that, I think. And the Doctor gets that line, romantic piffle, at one point. It, <laughs> it's... It, it's very much kind of undercutting the idea of this being played as a as a sort of grand sort of romance and and you know sort of moonlit glens and and you know lassies by the stream and mountains and rivers and all that stuff. It it kind of cuts away from that, but it doesn't quite manage to find anything to replace it with. And and I'm quite happy that we don't have happen half an episode of how do we break into the arsenal? This is how we break into the arsenal. Now we break into the arsenal. Now we've done that. And then we I'm 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 happy all that material isn't there, but it's also not really replaced with anything. So it's kind of it's it's a weird kind of mix. It doesn't quite it's neither fish nor fowl. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I would absolutely tend to agree. Yeah, we ended up not liking the smugglers much and it was because None of us on the panel are much fans of pirate stories. And that was a pretty damn broad pirate story, too. Trask is probably the closest character to that sort of characterization on the page. And I noticed that Annika Wills, when she reads the book, just, you know, makes it sound as if it's the sort of character that Tom Baker would have played in a comedy series. (laughs) But... The only literary reference that I found in the whole thing was, is it the very first chapter when they're listening to the battle and suddenly a cannonball rolls into the ground? And it's like, okay, that is from James Fenimore Cooper. And I can't remember which one of those awful books it's from. And I say awful books because Mark Twain has this beautiful beautifully funny essay called James Fenimore Cooper's Literary Offenses. (laughs) And it talks about why the um, Leatherstocking series is such a bunch of tripe. 
and it's just funny as hell. And one of them is they hear a cannonball go off and then it rolls right up to their feet. And it's like, yeah, this is going to be a comedy, isn't it? Because that was never (laughs) meant to be taken seriously, except it was. Yeah, that was the only literary reference I could find at all. Hmm. That's I'm quite impressed that you were able to find that one. Yeah, um, <laughs> I just is, remembered there is, it. <laughs> there is there is technically one other. It's not really a literature reference, but it's a history reference, which is that chapter nine is called "The Doctor's New Clothes," which of course, <laughs> obviously, is is referring to the Emperor's new clothes. Yes, that's the only, that's the closest other thing that I could I could find to it. But no, it's it's yeah. conspicuous by its absence, I think, and and particularly in these kind of genre stories, we're used to the idea that there are going to be kind of direct references, and yet that's very much missing here yeah absolutely like you said neither fish nor fowl it really can't figure out what to do with itself oh oh but i have i have just remembered something i'm sorry yeah I, I, go I ahead. Just, it's the weirdest thing because we're talking about the early chapters there's a, a scene um which is it's in both the broadcast version and, and the novelization where um, the doctor first encounters solicitor gray and he says that Article 17 of the uh, Aliens yes. Act prevents the execution of a foreigner without telling that country's embassy first. Now, one small... <laughs> I did history, unfortunately, because I'm not the most interesting person in the world. Um, <laughs> technically speaking, it's the British Nationality Act, not the Aliens Act of huh? uh, 1730. Oh. Um, it's very, that's, a, that's a small detail. But what's weird about it is that when uh, the doctor says it's Article 17, it's spelled out in Roman numerals. It is. Why would you do that? Because <laughs> that's, not so, cause that, cause that's obviously not something that comes from the broadcast version. And the doctor doesn't no. say, it, oh, yes, this is Article XVII. Of the, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the, it's, I, I don't know why that stuck out in my mind, but it was it's like as if that somehow gives it more weight or something. It's, is it not referred to that way um, in actual law? It, it it's just called Article Seventeen, and but oh. it's just it's just a it's just an oddity that that why of all the things that you would do translating the TV version to to the page, why would you choose to spell that out in Roman numerals? It's it's very prosaic. And three times. Th- yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I just noticed that myself. It's that's that's odd. That's a level of pretension I would expect from an, an American author, not a Jerry Davis. <laughs> No comment. (laughs) I realized something just at the same time that you were realizing, JG, um, about the prince and Chekhov's gun that I had totally forgotten. Chapter 14, the name of it is Where is the Prince? And I was like, (laughs) what a ham-handed chapter title. It's like, hey, reader, this is what you should be wondering right now. And then we never get the answer. Uh, I completely forgot about that. The the titles were were hit and miss. Chapter... Chapter 15 is called A Fight for the Brig, which made me wonder why Nicholas Kirk... Brigadier is... Yes, why is the Brigadier suddenly in this book? Or the little old... I've never been able to pronounce that spelling of old lady. From, oh, but um, you, but you gave it such a noble try. Yes, the little old lady from Pasadena. The little old lady. <laughs> yes, exactly. There were some which... slapstick moments in this book that I thought were kind of funny. Um, I'm going to adore those moments. Yeah, that I, I thought, you know, those. if I were watching this, I would really enjoy it. And I could almost see it in, I think, in the light that, JG, you're getting at, that it should just be kind of this lighthearted comedy. Uh, 
those weren't those weren't bad. Yep. Well, yep. So a lot of the stuff between um, Solicitor Grey and Perkins um, is it's all it's definitely meant to be lighthearted banter. Uh-huh. I'm not quite sure if that lands. Uh, Perkins is a great character yes. in the in the in the broadcast version. He comes across incredibly well, and he gets an absolutely sort of fantastic performance. And it's just it, it, it he comes across really well on the page, and I think. Um, I think Solicitor Grey comes across very well in the picture. So he's such a flat, cold character, and yeah. and uh, that suits Jerry Davis's prose style quite well. That's boom <laughs> boom. That that sounds that sounds more pejorative than I. No, no, I meant that. Um, no, no, that's that's harder. That's much harsher than I meant it to be. But he but he's quite he's quite good at landing that kind of that he's. There's a couple of times when Grey comes across as genuinely a threat. Yes. And that's that's quite good for a character that doesn't really have all that much screen time, and and the idea of Perkins kind of scampering along behind him, I think that comes across quite well as well. So I I think I think their banter works quite well on the page, but but stripped of the performance, it's very it's a slightly different um, emphasis, let's say. And but I still think it works quite well. Did did, did you get that, Jenny? Because because you, you you're so fresh to this, so yeah, I was thinking that when I was. Picturing it, Solicitor Grey is sort of a Severus Snape type character, um, but then crossed with Gaston from Beauty and the Beast because he has the little Perkins scampering after him all the time. Um, I probably my favorite paragraph of the whole thing is where Solicitor Grey is introduced a bit and gets described that we have a, just a wonderful description of him. He was a tall, thin man with a face the color of his name. You actually have to think about that for a yes. second. In fact, everything about the solicitor was gray, from his wood-spattered coat to his long, lank gray hair, carefully held back in a bow in the manner of the period, and his long gray riding boots. His voice had the dusty echo of the law chambers and the penetrating edge acquired from years of pleading cases in court. There was a dangerous stillness about the man. We know exactly what that means. Um, if oh, you. Yeah. And it's wonderful, uh, just wonderful description. He never allowed his feelings to get in the way of his business, and everything was considered in a purely logical light without the softening shadow of ordinarily hum- ordinary humanity or human feelings. You know exactly how this guy is going to react and sort of why mm-hmm. he's dangerous. Um, if only we had gotten that about the other characters. You know, if um, yeah. Mr. Davis could just sit down and give us a little paragraph about everybody that would have been really nice. Um, maybe not quite so, you know, ploppy like that. But yeah, he, that's he, not I, I'm Davis. sitting here and I'm reading him and I'm like, I know you can write like this. I know that you can give us this, but um, you don't. Well, you also haven't read Jerry Davis, so let me let me let you know. True. He can't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> At least not this late late going, because this is actually the last fully Jerry Davis book that we're ever going to get because the one after it is, um, we've already read it. It's the celestial toy maker and it wasn't actually written by Jerry Davis. It was, um, as far as I know, it was ghost written by one of his uh, writing students at the time in LA. Yeah. And this was in, um, I think the original script was 66, but the book came out in 84. Yeah, yeah. So okay. some time has passed. And then he so. died in 1991, which I always check because I feel bad if I malign the authors and they're still alive. But if they're dead, I'm like, okay, good. Let's go. <laughs> I'm more than willing to malign them even when they're still alive. But um, until I find out that I have to interview them and I'm like, whoops. Um, yeah. My favorite bit in this whole story is the doctor trying to treat Perkins for his eye problem. 
Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't quite translate to the page as well as it does either. That was the one part of the audio of the original broadcast that I did re-listen to because I wanted to hear how it how it um, compared with Annika Will's reading of it in the audiobook because she is marvelous at that point. Great heavens, man, the doctor shouted. Your eyes! Perkins jumped. What? Your eyes! Come over here to the light. Bend back here. That's right. The doctor strode around the table, pushed Perkins back over the table, and bringing out a magnifying glass from his capacious pockets, began to examine his eyes. Oh, I thought so, I thought so, he said. He seized Perkins' hair and banged his head back against the table. How does that feel? Ow! Perkins exclaimed. You suffer from headaches, don't you? He banged his head again. Don't answer, said the doctor. I can see it in your eyes. And it's just like, oh, this is lovely. It, it's hard to do that on page. Troughton does get to do a number of accents here, and I'm not convinced that his German accent would necessarily pass muster in Hanover, but um, still, you can tell that he's having such a joyful time he really being is. able to deliver in this role, and that, I do think that comes through in the page as well. I don't know whether Jerry Davis had the chance to sort of re-listen to the audio before he sort of rewrote this, but it's towards the end of the book that I think you start to get Troughton um, really emerging as a character in, in the whole book and I think that scene is brilliant and the other scene that um, which I sort of alluded to earlier on where I really thought that Troughton came through is the one where they're on the boat and he's kind of searching himself to try and find the prince's signet ring <laughs> which is such a you can you can hear for the only really I think for the second time the first time is 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 the is the headache scene which you're absolutely right to highlight it's so brilliant but that scene where Troughton is kind of patting himself down and going yes yes I have it some here and and like the threats are getting higher and higher and, and more and more dangerous for him then he finally <laughs> yeah exactly he flips out a conquer no no that's not it I'm almost there and then that's it. finally we get an impression of Troughton's doctor in the book and suddenly the whole thing kind of comes alive and it is it's it's well written by by Davis but it also sort of by extension makes you think could you not have done this for the past 90 pages and given us a, a, like <laughs> that kind of essence of the character because there's not really other than he's not doing well we will do this kind of uh, on the page accents oh thank god um that. But it's just finally, this feels like Triton's Doctor again. And it's glorious. It's so yes. great when it happens. Both those scenes, I absolutely agree with the headache scene. That's so lovely. It plays brilliantly to kind of, you know, Triton's impish sense of humour. And that mm -hmm. absolutely shines through in the page as well. I'm gl I'm so happy if Annika Wills was able to, to really get a handle of that. I haven't heard the audio, I, I have to be honest. But uh, it's great if she was able to get that as well. Yeah, It's well worth going back for. And I may give Jerry Davis a short shrift, but... I will admit, this. his prose here is something that will come down when, you know, the very first books you read by him are Doctor Who and the Cybermen or Doctor Who and the Tomb of the Cybermen, both of which are so much better written than this. Even The Tenth Planet was better written than this, and we only had that two books ago. Mm. But yeah, at least the comedy bits are, you know, handled well. It's very workmanly. It's, you know, it's got that feel to it, I suppose. <laughs> It gets done, you know, it happens. It gets done. It's a story. Yeah. <laughs> it's 84, he got his check, that's all that matters. <laughs> There's, because I always have to go here, there were a couple of things towards the end that, that stood out to me um, on yes, page please. 
let's see if I can scroll there on my PDF. On page uh, 107, there's a place where the, let's find where they are. I think it was Jamie. He says that he, yeah, they're, they're on the deck and they're thinking about escaping or they're, they're talking about where they're going to go. And it says, I don't know if we be able to find it, that Jamie was listening intensely. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you can listen intensely. I don't know that you can listen intensely. Like, <laughs> just, oh, it's so intense. I'm listening. Oh, like, <laughs> I don't really know what's going on there. Um, you suffer from headaches, don't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then on, I, I literally, I laughed out loud in this moment because it was such a strange thing for people to say. Um, where this is on 110 and I, I have to find there's like a sound let me see here what does it say oh yeah because they're they're hiding in like a I'm guessing there's some sort of structure near the dock or the, the jetty or something they've gotten off the boat they're hiding and some soldiers have come and solicitor gray is there though and it says at that moment gray seeing his chance he says help me help and then the soldiers, two soldiers, moved cautiously over. One turned to the other. What do you think, Bill? I don't know. Could have been a cat. I was like, the cat is just, help me. Yeah, this is definitely cats. Um, it, it was a cat. It was totally a cat. These rogue cats just roaming the shore, screaming for help. Gosh, they really ought to, you know, some, at some point we're not going to listen anymore. These cats. I just, it's like, what? Have, yeah. have you never heard of the famous Inverness Shire talking cats? I, I guess I uh-huh. haven't. Uh, <laughs> you, you Americans have such a myopic view of other countries. It's oh, very true. It's, it's so true. Well... I mean, certainly we have a better view than if it's not Scottish, it's crap, but... (laughs) (laughs) I can't help the truth. But uh, (laughs) since, uh, Jenny, since you mentioned the the sort of, uh, sort of getting towards the end of the book, I hope you'll permit me a brief read. Yeah, of course. Uh, Which is the last three paragraphs of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Jamie, suddenly afraid of the strange-looking object, hung back. He was going with these strange people into something that he could only dimly comprehend. Where would they take him? Would he ever see his native Glen again? As he hesitated, Polly turned back and grasped his hand. Don't be afraid, she said. It's much nicer inside than it is out. There's so many wonderful surprises waiting for you. You'll see. Jamie allowed himself to be drawn through into the small police box. The door closed behind him and he saw, to his astonishment, the large hexagonal, brightly lit interior of the time machine. And that's it. The book just stops. Yeah. That's not, that's not a conclusion. That's no. just you've run out of words. To say. There's no like. It's just weird. The book doesn't end. It just stops. Yes. It, it need. It feels like there's like four sentences that got cut off. Well, you go. Jamie looked around in astonishment. Don't worry, said the doctor, and we are off on another adventure. I know we're not going to get like wheezing, groaning noises and police boxes <laughs> fading from existence. I understand that, but this book just stops it's just like yeah. right okay I've, I've hit whatever it is the word count is done like we can't even get another two <laughs> sentences no. two sentences more to end the book Come 126 on, 126 yeah. yeah it's one of the shorter books which was actually one of the delights of it but also yeah I, I know exactly what you mean we haven't had that abrupt an ending since uh, the novelization of Galaxy 4 
And Galaxy 4 actually kind of ends on screen. I'm sorry, it ends on the page before it ends on screen, which is just really weird. It, it's rare that a Doctor Who book will do that. And I, I think you're right. I think it's Jerry Davis saying, oh, all right, here we are. Fine. We're done. End of story. Give me my check. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I was did it, really... Did it feel that way to you? Yeah, yeah, I was kind of surprised, too, that he even went with them. I'm like, what on earth would impel him to do this? Um, I mean, it's one thing to want to escape from the either of the fates of being shipped off as a slave or captured by the English, but these are people he's just met and you know as he's saying there's this strange looking object and even Polly when she's like oh there's there's many wonderful surprises I'm like you almost got killed a lot of times like in this book yeah and I don't know that she didn't get killed yeah I don't know that I would call that wonderful I don't know that you should be just telling Jamie like hey yeah come on this is gonna be fine I mean unless she's like planning to seduce him later, like Algernon. I don't know. Well, um, it, it does sound like it's a bit of a come on the way she does. delivers the line. Don't be afraid. It? It's much nicer nice inside. Exactly. <laughs> come it's on, big on the But <laughs> oh, that doesn't quite work as well. <laughs> there was a line earlier on page twenty about Algernon and his ramrod stiffness that oh, got yes, me bothered. You mentioned that. I'm surprised I didn't catch that because usually I'm the one that reads the uh, double entendres into things. But yeah, this time I really couldn't have been bothered to do it. That's a new low for you, Tony. (laughs) It really is. It really is. And I'm not quite sure why. Oh, well, that's fine. We can hardly Um, get through a podcast without a dick joke or two. I Well, Terrence Dix had nothing to do with the script for once. (laughs) So there's that. And yeah, yeah, it's just not. No, <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather save the deep dicking for other stories. To be honest, fair enough. We'll, yeah, the, we'll be... the next one's gonna require it. <laughs> yeah, I, oh yeah, good good luck with that one for both of you. By the way, oh. I hope you I hope you have a thoroughly joyful time underwater being menaced. Oh yes, well, <laughs> yeah, we actually should have Jenny back for that one because oh Jenny. Oh, I, I don't usually use menace as a verb, and I think I'm going to start doing that. I, I was menaced. That's just, I think, I usually think of something being a menace, but to menace somebody is such a nice, a nice thing. I'll, maybe I'll join well, for that simple sake. That's, that story really is a menace, though, because Jesus God. Well, anyway, obviously, um, any last thoughts on this one before we proceed on to uh, what Goodreads has to say about it? Well, I'd like to. I'd like to say do better next time, Jerry Davis. But we know that there isn't a next time, so thanks. No. That's why reading these in story order is actually quite nice because sometimes we get his better work later, and we will be doing that later because I think Tomb of the Cybermen's great. But then that's just me. This isn't his best. I will. will leave us with one last um, point where I, I was entertained, where Trask is kicked over the side of the Annabelle into the dark waiting waters. And Ben says, oh, I was going to try my karate on him. <laughs> it's like, what? Sure, you were ducking. For some reason at whatever man. this was, like 1130 last night, that really made me laugh. <laughs> Just... Oh, my. Karate, the natural defense of the 1960s English sailor. Uh, definitely, yes. <laughs> exactly. All right. 
As we always do then, <laughs> let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment or send us a message so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this story on Goodreads is, out of five stars is 3.64, which is surprisingly high. Uh, here's some sample reviews. Mel, no relation to Melanie Bush, gives it four stars and says, I started listening to this a week ago and I was very sick. It was lovely to have Annika reading the story. She did a wonderful job doing all the voices. Yes, she did. I wasn't familiar with the storyline at all. I just knew this was the last of the historical adventures. As someone who loves history, I thoroughly enjoyed this, really. There were also lots of little amusing moments. I love how Polly was a forward-thinking woman of the 1960s, teaching independence by action to the Scottish lass, who, I'm sorry, still I'm surprised they didn't take Kirsty with them, because that just seemed like the whole book was angling towards that. Yeah. I giggled when they made fun of someone being terribly short at 5'3", which I think was quite average for Pat's time in the TARDIS when everyone was tiny. Listening to the book really gave a nice feel for the story. Definitely one I'll listen to again. Our own Ron Shining chimed in on this one again, giving us four stars and saying a steady, interesting, tense read. Somehow it manages to have a more dangerous tone than Doctor Who with a sci-fi basis. Everywhere you look, everywhere you look, the threat of being shot, hanged, drowned, bayoneted, stabbed, and quartered. I didn't get that feeling. It's also refreshing to have a Doctor Who book with the English as the irrational, heartless, bloodthirsty monsters that they are. Seriously, a completely fair description for this and other periods of history. That is true. The images in my mind during this read were far more vivid than I imagined the film version was, but I will probably never know for sure, it being one of the many missing stories of the time. Polly for the second story in a row is based on sexuality and attraction being a motivated factor. I can't entirely discredit this as invalid in the series. It's not like social norms are somehow exempt from historical depiction, but the way it tends to go with Polly is a little cringeworthy and something I don't look forward to my daughter's reading. In the end, it saved everyone's lives, so uh, even more complicated. Happy to have Jamie's introduction settled. I have a lot of character growth to go through to become the stayed second Doctor Companion he's remembered as. And finally, Jody gives it two stars but brings in an interesting perspective with the following. I feel the need to explain, as this is out of place of my typical reading choices. I read that Diana Gabaldon was inspired to write Outlander by an episode of Doctor Who. As someone who loves both stories, I spent a fair amount of time looking for the Doctor Who episode. Only recently did I find out it's one of the episodes that was recorded over, they say, within months of it airing. What are the odds that Ms. Gabaldon saw it on that original airing? Well, barring some miracle, it isn't likely I'll be able to watch it. Fortunately, the internet search turned up a book based on the episode written by the screenwriter of the episode I couldn't resist. It was actually really interesting to read the book, but more in comparison to the Outlander show than the books. I could see how the story generated the thought for the books, but some of the language in this book seemed like it was almost identical to what is in the Outlander show. On the Doctor front, it was clearly a previous regeneration because his behavior wasn't like the modern-day peaceful, to humans at least, doctors, really. It's a quick read, 
and fun for me due to my membership in both fandoms, I shared this book with my other Outlander friends in the office. All right, so, JJ, we're going to start with you. Out of five stars, what would you give this and why? Um, well, you said the average was 3.67, is that correct? Uh, 3.64. Uh, 3.64. Oh, I probably would have given it 3.63. <laughs> okay. Just, <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, I think probably about three and a half um, is is probably about fair. It's not um, it's not bad. It's definitely not bad. It, I, I it's interesting. I actually meant to say something about that um, when we were uh, talking about the book, the main part of the book. But that idea that Ben and Polly keep saying, "Oh, they're English. Great, we're saved." Only yeah. to have only to have that subverted. That's really that's that's some quite sly writing, and I like that. That's that's some smart writing from Davis. Um, and that works both in the in the book and in the broadcast version. So that's terrific. So I'd give it three and a half, I think. I I wish we had a more of a sense of the Doctor through it. I wish that Jamie was somehow just... He doesn't need to be more emphasised, but he just doesn't... He needs more character. Like all that description, uh, Jenny, that you were saying about Solicitor Grey, we need some of that for Ben and for Polly and for Jamie, and that that's definitely mm-hmm. a lack in the book that takes away from it. But it's, it's a, an easy read, it's a quick read, and <laughs> just... Uh, just one very small point because um, there's a book from uh, Mad Norwegian called uh, Chicks Dead Time Lords and um, it, it's a really interesting read it, it's, it's, um, it's uh, uh, women and, and sort of uh, writing about Doctor Who and sort of feminism and whatever but the reason I mention it is because Diana Gabaldon wrote for that book she wrote an, a, a small essay oh. for it and the reason that one of the characters in the book is called Jamie is because of Jamie McCrimmon Oh that's my. why that's that's why Jamie Fraser in Outlander is called Jamie. So there is that. So that that is in fact yeah a, a rock solid connection. And huh. um, and she has written about the fact that she was a big fan of, of Doctor Who and a big fan of uh, Mr. McCrimmon in particular. I have not read Outlander, but for this book, three and a half. Three and a half. Okay, Jenny. It has to be somewhere in the range of three as well. Whenever there's a story that I read that I didn't particularly hate but didn't particularly love either it's going to be somewhere (laughs) in in the range of three i originally had it as three actually um i I literally have a note that says three question mark it could have been worse um which (laughs) but the 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 ultimate compliment (laughs) reading listening to to jg and what you were saying that it is a fast read i realized that i was grateful for that because there have been other books that we've read that the prose in so many ways has been stiffer and stranger you know i did pick apart a couple of very small things uh, about this but there have been other ones that it was like every other sentence i was finding Mm -hmm. something that just threw me right out of the story and that actually didn't happen here so I think I will also upgrade my score to a 3.5. Okay. And as for me, yeah. Well, we all know how much I adore historicals. Oh, so much. <laughs> I can <laughs> hear my... the love that's dripping. Yeah. It's, um, far be it for me to quote Jontron in one of his videos, but, you know, oh, my favorite. You know, I love, so love historicals that being said it's not donald cotton i so wish that donald cotton had gotten his hands on this book i really actively wish that jerry davis had said you know i'm gonna 
give this one a pass and they would have offered it to somebody else. And Nigel Robinson probably would have said, you know, Donald Cotton has written fairly well for us in the past. Let's have him do this one because he probably would have just, but it would have changed out of all recognition. And maybe that's something that needs to happen because um, you notice during the discussion, I kept saying, well, I wish this had happened or I wish they'd kind of gone with what I was thinking they were going to do and give it to Kirsty as the new companion and all this. And it's a wish for a story that's not on the page. Mm-hmm. Because the story that's on the page is not quite enough. So I actually only gave it three out of five, which isn't necessarily low for me, but it certainly isn't high either. It's not Davis at his best, but having read Celestial Toymaker, it's by no means his worst. <laughs> so yeah, there we are. So thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. And thank you, J.G. McCrory, for being with us on this uh, trip back into the past. And Jenny as well. Next time, we look at the underwater menace. And we may even have a special interview with the writer of that book and the editor of the Target Range in this time period, Nigel Robinson. Yes. That means I have to not, I'd have to sanitize myself then. Well, I don't know. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us at Facebook at DW, I'm sorry, at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word of their spaces. You can also visit our nearly pristine subreddit at www.reddit.com. Why am I doing that accent? A forward slash R forward slash <laughs> Target BC. Also, feel free to watch our videos on YouTube. You know where to find them. Follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and basically anywhere you can find podcasts. And if all else fails you, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheerio. She said, you must have robbed the Duke's arsenal. Disgusting!